for me, as far as my artistic abilities, it came across as a lot easier to create. <laughs> so You know what, though? I like that. And one of the things, one of the reasons I think I like it is it's a reference to something that's inside the book that you're, the reader will eventually get to. And then they'll flip to the front cover and they'll be like, oh, and it's like light bulb moment that re-energizes them right. and gets them excited about the story again. But science fiction books, paperback books, used to do that back in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s. But it seems like in the 90s, the cover art for science fiction novels suddenly became like some kind of guy doing some kind of action thing on the right. cover. Because that's what was selling better. Exactly. Like, and, and, and it wasn't any, it was more like, I guess, like a, like women, romance for women where you put like two people mm -hmm. on the cover and stuff. But like back in the day, the science fiction novel art from, like I said, from the eighties and the seventies was kind of phenomenal and usually did refer to something that was going to happen in the story. Right. So yeah, I, I like it's, that idea. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, too, because um, with my other one, Giant's Eyebrows, um, I did it, like, in that stylized manner. But and, and when I showed it to my brother, he was just like, no, it's stupid. I hate it. And then after he read the book, he's just like, yeah, now I get it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, that's, you know, that's what I'm going for. Like, it stands out in a certain way. And then it has meaning after you've read it. So that's actually, uh, now that I think about it, that's one of the greater things like greater reasons not reasons it's good that i have my own ability to create my covers because then i can make them as meaningful as i want well and and also it's awesome you have that kind of artistic ability i absolutely do not i will always have to get artwork from somebody else but you can make it whatever you want you can tweak it and you totally own it like right. as soon as you have created it you own copyright right as soon as you create it so like you don't have to worry ever about like, you know, what your contract is with somebody else. And is this going to be dual use? And are they, is it going to wind up on somebody else's novel at some point? Right. You have to negotiate yours. royalties with them. Right. <laughs> you just own all of it, which is awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. I, yeah. And that's, that's also interesting too, because I think uh, the cover art, like it's such an important part of the book that few people really kind of recognize. Like, you know, when you go into these writers' spaces, like, they talk about their story, about their novel, and about what they're doing, and it's just like, well, what's, what's going to catch the reader's eye to take it off the shelf in the first place? Or what thumbnail are they going to see in the Kindle version, like, and is it acceptable to see it in a small format? Because now Kindle, like, the thumbnail is, like, the size of a postage stamp. Oh, yeah. And so, like, have you captured the reader's attention with the book? Because, you know, there's that stupid saying, you can't judge a book by its cover. But, well, people do anyway. Yeah, people buy <laughs> books based on cover art. Absolutely they do, you know. And, and that's what gets them to pick the book up in the first place. I mean, if you don't have, like, name recognition or it's not, like, advertised in some other manner, it's they see the book on the shelf and they pick it up. Right, right. Well, anyway, I digress. Because that, that was actually quite a fun um, creation. Like, a, a fun experience for me, like... Um, I'm actually kind of sitting at a point in my novel that is a little harder to write and I don't have as much, uh, what's the right word? I'm not as motivated to write this part of the novel. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to switch gears and focus on the, on the cover art was actually a nice diversion, but now I can get back to, uh, the main, the main body of my work. 
Well, that's good. At least what you did was take a diversion and still progress on your work. Mine, <laughs> when I take a diversion, I just kind of drop everything and then, you know, read a bunch of comic books and then <laughs> come back weeks later to wonder what the hell was I thinking when I wrote this? Right. <laughs> Sometimes, though, you can actually find good inspiration by doing that. Like yeah, if you true. get your mind out of that rut that you're in and find and look at other things, then sometimes that'll inspire, like it'll inspire your current work. So it, it's not a bad practice. I think, you know, knowing what works for you. Yeah. Helps. And, I mean, it does seem, I am a little jealous of these, uh, of some writers out there who just seem to be able to crank out book after book, after, <laughs> book, after, book, after book, after book and wonder like, how do you have enough, how do you have enough ideas to fill up like maybe, you know, like six or seven books right. a year? Right. And how do you like, cause how much of you sit down, you write a first draft. I mean, if you're going to write another book within another, if you're going to have another book out in another two or three months, well, how often, how much time do you have to devote to that rough draft to, you know, clean it and everything else? You got to get it right. Like out, right. right out the gate. Like right. the first draft needs to be I, pretty close. You know, I would imagine that a lot of those authors are very practiced at that type of storytelling mm. and if you have a character that's memorable like Indiana Jones oh, yeah. then the characterization of that is so strong that you can put him in a different setting and say that he would behave in this manner so then the, the thing is to just find a, a plot that works with his character and and then if you can write you know 2,000 words a day then you're got it done pretty quickly i think that's true i think a lot of those characters in particular in say the adventure genre where you know they they crank out book after book after book but most of it involves the same cast the same set of characters that are moving on to another adventure so some of their backstory is already taken care of and stuff in previous novels and when people go to pick up the novel maybe pick one up that's in the middle of all that published work and then go back and read the first second third and fourth one you know you know to kind of figure out what the story, what the total story was. Right. Well, and it also establishes the character relationship in the author's mind. Like, so you can actually hold all of those characters in position in your mind and say, this person reacts to this person in this manner, typically. Like, so when they're all doing this thing, like, how are they going to behave? And it's actually quite easy to say this character, his his responses or her responses are this, and so yeah, they, there they go. You put them in this new setting. This is how they respond to it. So I think if you've got it in your mind, then it, and you have the time to do it, I, you know, most uh, working class people probably don't have the time to crank out that many novels that I, quickly. <laughs> I think that's true. Like right at that point, writing has to be your career, and you have to just be doing it. You know? Right. But also, you know, it takes me a minute to get into the right headspace for writing. And I probably only have like maybe an hour or two hours of really good work in me every day. I kind of had this fantasy when I first went down this path of thinking I'm going to quit my eight hour a day job and go to writing for eight hours a day. And I'm just it's just going to be great no matter as long as I sit there and write eight hours a day, I'm going to have a bunch of stuff that I, you know, a bunch of work that I can use to get there. But man, I couldn't. I yeah. couldn't write eight hours a day. Like, oh, I, I think I had very much the same idea. Like, that if I was going to be a full-time novelist, mm-hmm. I, I could work four to eight hours a day and and call that good. But I think I think you're right. Like, the creative. Well, and and that's not that's not to say though because doing eight hours of creative work is much different than doing eight hours of editing. Mm. 
I can do eight hours of editing, you know, for in a day easily enough. It does get tiresome, but it's not as tiresome as like creating it from scratch. So yeah, it's the balance of it all. Yeah. But anyway, you said you had a story idea that you were going to pitch. I'm kind of curious. Okay. So here's, here's the idea. Uh, and, and again, we want to iterate that anybody can take this idea and run with it. This is not an idea that we are personally probably, or probably not going to, to publish anything about. So go forth and have at it execute. If you do write it, let us know so that we can, we can read it and enjoy it as well. And just kind of see our ideas take for our, you know, produce something cool. So here's the idea. We have a lot, we have like the new avatar movie that's coming out. And if, I don't know if you, if you guys have seen the old Avatar movie or not, but it's basically kind of a allegory for, like, the conquest of North America by Europeans, right? So you had a native population, uh, a bunch of people come in, and they're kind of sweeping aside the native population and taking over their resources and territory with, and stuff. With right? better technology, too. Exactly, better technology. That's, that's a very good point. That the native population more in tune with how their world actually works and, and stuff, but the other the other people are coming through and conquering, right? Well, so that's one type of science fiction story that we see. And we have another type that's even more common, which is a very aggressive alien species coming to Earth and conquering Earth, you know? So we have that also as like an archetype. But if we back up a second and we look at kind of reality and we say, well, uh, so far we've had no provable contact with aliens. I mean, yes, I happen to be one of those people who thinks that aliens have visited Earth in the past. <laughs> That's just me. I even think that, you know, it's possible that the United States government or other governments around the world have had contact with aliens. It's possible, okay? I'm not, we don't have to go into that in this podcast. But, uh, <laughs> but for now, let's just say that we, uh, that we exist on a planet and there's been no real alien contact at all, and we have to ask the question, well, why? I mean, the universe is huge, and it's really old, and we know that life has existed on Earth for hundreds of millions of years, and so that's a long time for life to exist in other places as well. Absolutely. So, what if it's this? What if we are thinking about science fiction and alien contact in the wrong way? We're intellectualizing it too much, and we need to get back to the basics of what happens in nature with species and sometimes invasive species and sometimes uh, uh, how things happen to evolve? Well, what if most of the life in the universe, practically all of it, most of it anyway, has act is actually out there and the universe is teeming with life? However, it's evolved to avoid predators at all costs. Like they're, they're a defensive type of, of life that, that is the predominant form of life in the universe. Instead of an aggressive. Instead of an aggressive. Instead of being warlike, they're more of the turtle or the... Chameleon. Yeah, or run and hide well, or... I guess chameleon's not a good example, but... <laughs> well, yeah. But still, they find a way to avoid predators so that they can survive, right? Um, and with Earth's current technology level... And us blasting out radio and TV signals everywhere, and you know, occasionally using nuclear weapons on the surface of the planet and and stuff. I mean, all of this has happened for us. It seems like it's a long time ago because we're, you know, our lifespan is less than a hundred years for the most right. part. And but to an alien species that watches stuff in in the long haul, maybe it's only it's very recent for them. Right. What if like they perceive Earth as being 
a planet full of predators to to be avoided at all cost. So, so yeah. well, and that's that's interesting too because if you extrapolate that out to humans colonizing the galaxy, mm-hmm. this this race could exist in a galactic state like all over the place, and we just don't find them because they're really good at hiding. <laughs> I guess I forgot to silence my phone. I I like that idea um, quite a lot, actually, because it does it does put a spin on it that I don't think I've ever heard uh, talked about before. Yeah, I so, mean, we may not see ourselves as being a predatory species. However, we do happen to eat everything on the planet. I mean, there is right? a we are. You, Apex predators. Right. We think of, we're thinking in terms, usually in terms of what our own diet is here in the United States and everything else. But if, if you just look at humankind in a, in a total, like if you examined every single person on planet earth as a, uh, contributing member of the species and, uh, examined what they eat, we eat everything. We, we, there's nothing we don't eat. There's some, like we eat each other. In some in some cases, you know, there are there are cannibalistic tribes out there that still exist, and cannibalism, even though we frown upon it in Western society, has enabled some people to survive in harsh conditions and stuff. Right, right. We eat insects, we eat we eat animals, we like eat plants, we eat anything that's organic that won't kill us outright. Exactly, we eat everything. And what if aliens are delicious? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, what, what that that could be the title of the book. What if aliens are delicious? I, you know what? Run with that. Run with that. Let us know how, what you come up with. Like, do you have? Is there an alien out there that's like zero calorie and tastes exactly like vanilla ice cream? You know, because like, I'm telling you, like, yeah, we're gonna eat that alien. We're absolutely going to. Yeah, so, I wonder what Yoda's race tastes like. Right? I know. Probably um, frogs. But <laughs> um. So so it's interesting that you, you delve into the like alien life teeming throughout the galaxy. And I was thinking about that. Like, what if the reason that we haven't seen alien life is because it develops underwater? Ooh, because okay. if you think about it, like the, the most biologically diverse period on Earth's history was Cam- the Cambrian explosion, yeah. I believe. And all of that was sea life. Almost all of it. Like, I mean, there were probably amphibians and whatever. You can't, you can't forge metal underwater, no matter how many thumbs you have. Mm-hmm. Like, unless you have a very specific way of doing it. Like, and that to, to be able to stumble across the process of forging metal or, or creating hard tools underwater would be such a, like, I think that's the barrier. Oh, man. I think there is sentient life out there, but it's all aquatic. I mean, because, like, think about it. Like, the octopus, they're really, really freaking smart. And, like, maybe they evolved to be sentient, but they're mm. stuck underwater. They have eight arms. They could manipulate crap. We've seen it in zoos, but they're stuck underwater. You can't, like, in order to use electricity underwater, you have to have it shielded very specifically or else everybody dies. Yeah, that's right. Oh, and, man. and so, like, I think the barrier to technology has got to be good because, you know, 
on the surface of the planet, you can light a fire and like screw around and be like, oh, this fire is getting bigger by throwing sticks and rocks on it. And then, and then later in the morning, like the next day you see, oh, we melted this rock. Mm -hmm. What can we do with that? And so you logically extrapolate. You can't do that underwater. Mm -hmm. Like you, there's tools that you could make out of rocks, but without heat, the application of heat. But I, I mean, you could use a, a thermal vent, but again, that's dangerous because the heat radiates through the water so well. Like, yeah, and and how how you couldn't really mass produce that at least right. not in a way that we think of of being able to work underwater. Like we can only work underwater with tools that we develop on land. You're absolutely right. I have never considered that before. That is eye opening, actually. That's interesting. I, and and so it just it it seems to me like you know we're we're finding all these planets that supposedly have liquid water, mm -hmm. and that's necessity for life. Europa might have water on the surface. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. Like there could be sentience there, but they're going to be tribal. They're going to be like Stone Age essentially if they have sentience. Like mm -hmm. it, I, I think it's very unlikely that they would make the leap to the technology that we have just because, just because they're isolated in that aquatic environment. Well, and you know what? You bring up an interesting point too, because like all of, out of all of the living organisms that exist on planet earth. Um, the huge majority actually live in the oceans. Right. And, and not on land. Like the vast majority of plants that are alive on planet earth are in the ocean. The vast majority of, if all of the biomass that you kind of pile together, if you put on one side of the scale, all of it that lived on land on the other side of the scale, all of it that lived in the ocean, the ocean side would way outweigh the land side. Um, so that is a completely conceivable. Well, and you thing. think think about like dolphins and whales. Like we we consider mm -hmm. them to be on par with us intellectually because mm -hmm. they talk. You know, they essentially talk to each other, but they they're so constrained by the aquatic environment, like that as an environmental uh, evolutionary pressure that they just can't do anything other than be smart underwater. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and and to be honest, we do see. I mean, I, I hesitate to use the word civilization, but we do see uh, animals underwater that organize themselves according, like, you know, like you have schools of fish, you've got groups of dolphins, whatever groups of dolphins are called, pods of dolphins, pods of whales, I don't know. And uh, even octopus, they have been observed, there was like a group of 15 octopus that had have been observed now underwater, organizing themselves into a small community, and they banded together to defend that community against predators. Um, I hadn't heard about that one. Yeah, which I think is really interesting, you know? So, I mean, obviously there are there's a sliding scale of intelligence, but what you... You've really hit on something here about how, like, the limiting factor may not be intelligence. It may be your environment and what you're capable of doing right. in that environment. Well, and it also, like, if you think about that um, to the extreme, like, there could be a planet that life exists on where the planet is so far away from the, you know, it's like tight, uh, tight where it's liquid methane on the surface and all this, like a different medium for life. Like what are the physical properties of that medium and how would that affect a species that arose within that medium? Mm -hmm. So if, and if the medium was liquid or if it was gaseous or if it was semi-solid or something like that. So it, that would actually be really interesting to inject into a story like this. Like 
what if you know we go out into the galaxy and we're looking for life like us but we're not looking in water or in the lava mm. or whatever whatever other liquid exists or we're not looking in the right places because we just are arrogant and we just have never thought about it that's really wild yeah from a from a especially like say from a writer's perspective like that, that really opens some doors on what you can what you can do with that right. i mean you know, and what would our human response be to finding something like that? Would it be that we treat them uh, like as if they are on the same level as us? Would it be as if we treat them as like a pet monkey or something? Uh, we would you just know? eat them. We would probably just eat them. <laughs> yes, they're, they're, they're good on shish kebab, you know. <laughs> like a, boil up some, some titan alien lava right. beast like for dinner tonight. Everybody come over, you know. Well, I mean, they mm. did eat mummies back in the day. They, so. We eat everything. Like, humans eat everything. Yeah. We are absolutely an omnivore. We have evolved. We, <laughs> we on purpose, there are people who go out and will eat the most dangerous thing that they can find, like, like puffer fish. Right. If it, you know, one mistake and it kills you, but you can't tell from what's sitting on the plate, you're going to eat it anyway. <laughs> you know, like, like, like we eat everything. Well, and I mean, I've seen like those people that can stomach inorganic material and, mm. you know, those guys that set out to eat an airplane and it's just like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it was in small bites, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we eat everything. We eat so. everything. They're probably delicious. I really like that idea that the, the humans that go out into the galaxy are the cannibal, like not cannibal, but they're the predators. Yeah. And we don't even realize it because we come across a, another species on another planet and we don't recognize their sentience. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh, eat this thing that looks like a giant tardigrade. And uh, like, it's delicious. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it calls it, it calls itself Claire and it's just like, it has a rich <laughs> life, but it can't talk to us because no. it's so, you know, supposedly primitive. Like, it's squeaking, and we're thinking, like, oh, it's just oh, so cute. cute. But at the yeah. same time, it's like, tell my wife I it, loved her. It tastes <laughs> like marshmallows and cotton oh, candy. Like, <laughs> like, you know, isn't that the whole point of, like, trying to go to some other planets also? Is that eventually, like, well, we're going to be able to, to live in other biosystems, you know? Well, uh, hopefully, because the Earth's not going to be around forever. And there's just too many of us, you know? <laughs> we're... We're exploding in population, so we're going to hit 8 million oh, uh, pretty soon. 8 billion? 8 billion, I mean, yeah. <laughs> 8 million. Oh, my gosh. It's been a long day. Dude, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's that's my theory, is that we have, uh, uh, that the rest of, of life in the galaxy has, has decided that humans are probably, the, because we're just announcing our presence instead of hiding. Right. We're just well, blasting out radio and TV signals. And we're announcing it with nukes. And, yeah. Yeah. So we're, we have all of these signals going out in the place, out in space saying, here we are. We're launching, launching spaceships with plaques saying, here's where we live. Right. And everything. And then everybody <laughs> else is freaked out because they're all like, they're all accustomed to kind of like stay low. Don't get seen, right. you know, avoid predators in all costs. It would be like the galactic UN. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you bring up like, uh, was it the Voyager that has the golden record and all that on yeah. it? Um, 
I mean, because obviously there's Star Trek where Voyager comes back. Oh, yeah, as V'ger. Yeah, yeah. Star Trek 1, the motion picture. But I am unaware of any science fiction that just talks about if that plaque were found. Mm. Like, uh, you know, it's in somebody's galactic neighborhood. They spot that object. They're like, that's not natural. Let's go see what it is. Mm -hmm. And they find the record. Like, how do they react to that? Because I know we tried to code in how to read it for any sufficiently advanced species that would know math and stuff like that. But it's like, could they even decode it? Or would they would they find this golden record and be like, ah, oh, yum, yum, good potato chip. Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it kind of goes back to us, too. Like, we've made weird discoveries on planet Earth. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go down the ancient aliens road. <laughs> Everything is responsible for aliens. But, right. you know, like, we, there have been a few weird discoveries. What if we have already come across a probe, didn't really understand what the technology was that we were looking at, and just, you know, set it up in a temple somewhere, covered I, it in stone, started worshiping it? See, uh, that's another idea that I really like. Like, there was this uh, thing on YouTube, I don't know if you saw it, it was like, this idea was the Black Knight satellite. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, it turns out yeah. to be a piece of debris. Like, it's pretty pretty obvious that it's debris. Mm -hmm. But what if there was a satellite orbiting our planet that was ancient? Mm -hmm. You know, that's, again, that's the, that's the a setting for really something quite interesting to happen. Because at that point, you can basically turn everything into magic. Like, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, like, this awakened something, you know, it, you know, it could be that uh, Enki from Sumerian legend was, is in it and he comes back <laughs> and it's just like, oh no, what do we do with this ancient God? Like, and yeah. is this science fiction now or is it fantasy? Like, I, I like those ideas personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do too. That's very interesting. Uh, and you know what? I know there are going to be a lot of people uh, if they, the, all three people that listen to this podcast <laughs> who, are, who are like, no, 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 they can track everything in space. They can track even down to the smallest bolts. But you know what? We also had a something smash into the moon recently, and it took them two weeks to really figure out exactly what it was. That it was, right. it was. They thought, oh, it was a rocket booster from some rocket launch, probably from China, then maybe from from SpaceX and everything else. Smashed right into the moon, weren't tracking it at all. So until it until it happened, and they were then they were able to go back through the data and figure out exactly what it was. Right. But you know, first impulse was something smashed into the moon, and we don't know exactly what that was, right. but we know it came from Earth. So well, and then too, like how I'm I'm sure they have some sort of scientific numbers way of figuring it out. But how do how are we sure that we know like that we then we can track 80% of the space dust. Like, where do we get that number from? Yeah. Like, are we certain that it's own, that it's actually 80% or is, are we tracking 1% of what, like... I know, yeah. It's, it's like, well, you know, like, what's the way to test that? Right. And the only real way to test it is when stuff pops up that you don't, didn't see before. And guess what? That's happening all the time. Right. That's how we're finding new stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, and, and, you know, it doesn't help either when you have, honestly, when you have, like, countries that that destroy satellites with missiles and create like millions of other bits of space debris that just clouds everything anyway we're going down a road now um, so i wanted to get back to like so this is this has been kind of a struggle for me as an you know as i try to write novels like we have all these cool ideas for sci-fi settings how do you make that interesting 
And I think the key is to, you have this amazing setting. It doesn't matter what it is. Like Harry Potter's world doesn't make a lot of sense with the way they use magic, but it's still really interesting because of the characters. Mm -hmm. And I think if you have these amazing like settings that you can, the setting isn't quite as important as the character because the character has to be believable for the setting to go unnoticed. Mm. Um, because, you know, Harry's just a random kid that had, happens to be from these magical parents that, you know, that did all this stuff to try and save him. And so he, he goes through the rigors of a school system and you see that he is a young child like a young boy growing up in a school system like the magic is mm -hmm. kind of the secondary aspect of that and so i think what jk rowling did the best was characterizing and and nailing down that they were going through these growing pains through school mm -hmm. and th and school is a recognizable system for all of us or most of us so putting three characters three people that are, you know they become friends and then they go and do all this stuff together like that's the genius of those stories. And you could transpose that into any genre, any location, any setting. And so with the sci-fi thing, it would be really interesting to have these three alien characters that are all trying, they're playing hide and seek essentially from the humans that they have discovered or like they're practicing hide and seek in order oh, to be better at it. Like, and they're growing closer together. That would make it more interesting and a little more relatable because you're, you know, you're humanizing. Mm -hmm. so you know that for me like having those realizations as i was pursuing noveling i'm just like you know i have all these amazing settings in my brain and i have all this like futuristic sci-fi nonsense that's going on in there too but none of it's interesting unless you have characters that are relatable to most people yeah and you put them in real like realistic situations within that rule set and then you uh yeah, and then you have them grow because that's what everybody is leaning towards. I think you, I think you really hit on it right there when you, when you said relatable because to me, when I'm reading a story, whether it's a fantasy story or it's an action story or it's a science fiction story, me personally, I need to be able to put myself in the story and see things from the perspective of whatever my favorite character is. Might not even be the main character, but whatever my favorite character is. And, and kind of I know that there may be a lot of people who read stories and they just sit back and they just let it happen. Basically, they read the con they read the text and it's, it's just like watching TV show and they you know whatever's going to happen is going to happen and you're kind of that's, mentally divorced. That's how I read it. <laughs> <laughs> Me personally, like I relate it and I say I ask myself quite a bit, like is that what I would have done in that situation or. You know, maybe I'm learning something new from this character because maybe they have like an instinct or or right. a talent or something that I don't have, and I'm going to get to see that unfold. And that's what really kind of sucks me into to a good character in a story. Right. Is, well, and I, I think there's what they what it is is you're setting the character in the real world in relatable places, like the character has to go to the bathroom and you've been to the bathroom before. So you know what that experience is like, Yes. but then this character has to break somebody's neck. And so mm. you step it up from the, the everyday average experience up to, you know, yes, I punched the wall. And then yes, I, I pulled the trigger on this gun. Like you start escalating the experience outside of the realm of what no, most normal people would have. And then 
even the average reader can still follow along. So even if you're not an expert in martial arts and you don't know what it's like to do a spinning wheel kick and hit somebody on the, or an axe kick and hit them on the top of the head with your heel, like you can, a good author could probably make that experience happen for almost anybody Mm -hmm. because you're extrapolating similar experiences up to the point where that experience happens. Yeah, no, I see your point exactly. Wow. So, interesting sci-fi settings with interesting characters, I think, are one of my favorites. But, you know, then, you know, you, you start to blur the lines between sci-fi and, and fantasy, and, which I think is why bookstores got wise and started lumping them in the same category, because at a certain point, it's just, it's magic. Yeah, and that's true. Like, it, it's just, it just happens, and you have to just take it on faith. Like, push button here, action right. happens there. Right. Whatever that in-between mechanism was, we don't know, you know? <laughs> but we can kind of explain it, like, oh, it's crystals, and the tune to the right frequency. <laughs> you know? It's crystals? I don't know. That's, that's a good one, yes. <laughs> so... It's crystals. <laughs> <laughs> they're probably delicious, and they, they use crystals to get around the galaxy and hide. I'm telling you, there's got to be some cult out there in the world somewhere that's eating crystals right now. <laughs> Like, we're getting the pyramid energy inside us. Yeah. Yeah, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I, think, I think that might be a good note to end. Right on. on. Okay, so we'll call it quits on this one today. And Thanks for listening, if you're actually listening. And... We'll see you next time. <laughs> Bye.